Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went, she called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us, and thank you for leading us to study it this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things. You'd teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us. Oh God, make us more like Jesus. Give us spiritual understanding. Help us that we might live for you. Father, I pray for your people. Pray that they would be open to your word. And Father, that you would help me You would keep me from error, help me to speak clearly. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Dwight Moody once shared a story about a young man who had agreed to serve on a ship to earn his passage across the sea. A few days into the journey, though, he fell sick, and he was quarantined, set aside to the lower deck. One night, news began to spread that a sailor had went overboard, and the sick young man was filled with despair, wishing he could do something, wishing he could do anything to help out. He was stuck down below, and he couldn't get to the deck to help. Suddenly and unexplainably, he was overcome with the urge, the urge to light a candle and place it in the porthole. He wasn't sure what good it would do, but he did it anyway. As soon as he did it, he fell asleep and he slept well all night. The next morning, the young man learned that the sailor who had went overboard had been saved And this man who was saved is shared that just as he was about to lose his strength, just as he was about to go under the water for the last time, he lifted his hand up and a faint light had shone across the surface of the water. 
the result of a small candle being lit and placed in the porthole. You see, that candle, insignificant in such a big ship, had shone across the surface, had given just enough light that someone could see that hand coming up out of the water and they were able to get to that sailor and save him from drowning. Theologian Francis Schaeffer has famously said, there are no little people in God's sight and there are no little places. To be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants him, this is the creature bringing glory to God. There are no little people in God's sight and no little places. Our text this morning reminds us that when God's people are committed to him in the place where he wants them to be, there truly are no little people among them. Each is important. Every single person is important, even if their call is to shine a faint light into a grim darkness, even if it's in the face of their own weakness and their own suffering. For God has a plan for his people. God has a plan. And God delights to work in and to work through the faithfulness of his people to take that faint light, that faint offering, and to use it to bring glory and honor to himself. So today, we're embarking on a new sermon series, a journey, a voyage. Hopefully none of you fall off. We're gonna go through the book of Exodus together this year. This book is a continuation of the book of Genesis, a continuation of the story, of the fulfillment of of God's covenant promises to his people. You may remember where the story left off. We just finished a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 50. What had happened? Jacob and all his sons, the whole family, are now living in Egypt. And if you look at 1-1, Uh, here in Exodus, you'll see the first word for most of you is these. These are the names of the sons of Israel. There's something missing in your English translations. The first word in the original Hebrew language in Exodus 1.1 is the small, but I would say significant conjunction, and, and, it's a continuation, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, wanted his readers to know this is a continuing of the story. It's a continuation of Genesis. Look at verses six and seven. They bring this point home. It retells, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Joseph dies, but Israel is fruitful. Israel increased greatly. Israel multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. The land of Egypt, it says, was full of the people of Israel. All was well. All was well. Well, not so fast. That all changes in chapter one, verse eight. Look at there with me. Exodus chapter one, verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. A king who did not know 
Joseph. We know from Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, that this is about 400 years later. On the timeline side of things, this is about 400 years later. Likely several kings in Egypt have come and gone, and now there arises one who has no intimate knowledge of Joseph. Doesn't mean he hadn't heard of him, but he has no link to Joseph. Some commentators wonder if this is a foreign king who's invaded or something. But either way, this king has no knowledge of Joseph. And such a fact brings about our first of two points this morning. If you're taking notes, the worst conditions. The rise of a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph brings about the worst conditions for the people of Israel. Verses nine through 14 of chapter one highlight the beginning of these worsening conditions. We are told there that this Pharaoh, this king had grown paranoid. It says that he fears the people of Israel will join with Egypt's enemies should war break out. Why does he feel this way? Why is he worried about this? We'll look at verse nine. He describes Israel this way. They're too many and too mighty for us. There's too many of them and they're too mighty for us. So he sets taskmasters over them. He afflicts them with heavy burdens. In other words, and the text makes this clear, in verse 13, he makes them slaves. He makes the people of Israel to be his slaves. They build wondrous things. For the king of Egypt. The text tells us that these taskmasters are ruthless. They make the lives of the people of Israel, look at verse 14, bitter with hard service. He makes them work and work and work. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The harder they pressed, the more they multiplied. The more and more he made them work, they just continued multiplying. And that leads to the next phase of the worsening conditions. Verses 15 through 21 tells us that Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to begin killing all the male children Born to Israelite women. He tells them, when you're there at the birthing stool, I'll let you ladies figure all that out. When they're there, when they're having the baby, if it's a male child, kill the child. Don't let the male children be left alive. He's so paranoid, so fearful, he's now ordering infanticide. For he knew if I cut off the male children, I'll eventually cut off all the people. Eventually, in the next generations, there will not be a people anymore. But as we'll see soon enough, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Before we get there, let's point out that it doesn't. It doesn't. We see the final stage of the worst conditions in verse 22. I want you to look there with me. The last verse of chapter one. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. 
So first, it was oppressive slavery. Next, it was infanticide. And now, rather than limiting his evil ambitions to Hebrew midwives, he conscripts all the people of Egypt. Join me in this Holocaust. Let's kill all the Hebrew male children. Throw them into the Nile, an embodiment of an Egyptian God. Offer that child as a sacrifice. Throw that child into the river. These are indeed the worst of conditions for the Hebrew people. Many of you know that before I followed the Lord's call to ministry, I worked as a molecular biologist. In the mid-90s, the most direct approach to that career was to earn a degree in microbiology, the study of small things, which I did. I studied that, got my degree in 1998, and I'm telling you this now because I want the next sentence to make sense to you, okay? The next sentence I'm gonna say won't make sense unless you know that. Are you ready? My favorite bacterium is Thermus aquaticus. Never thought I'd ever say that in a sermon. My favorite bacterium is Thermus aquaticus. Not many people have a favorite bacterium. I do. Why? Why Thermus aquaticus, or as we call it, TAC? Why TAC? Well, TAC was discovered in 1969. It was discovered living uh, in the hot springs of Yellowstone National Park. That's kind of what gives those springs to that beautiful color is all the different bacteria in that living there. But this was a time, just what, 1969, not that long ago, this was a time when most people believed that normal life was unsustainable on a protein level above 130 degrees Fahrenheit. But here was a bacterium living and thriving in temperatures exceeding 160 degrees, fully functional, fully capable of living. The discovery of Thermus aquaticus opened the door not only for the exploration of new species living in extreme environments, something I happen to enjoy studying, but it also led to the dawn of what we now call PCR, our polymerase chain reaction technology, which is in widespread use today. Not until Thermus aquaticus was discovered. But you're like, we didn't come here for a science lesson. Surely there's something else we can learn from Thermus aquaticus. There is. I believe that Tack, my old buddy, reminds Christians like you and me of a very vital and important truth. It reminds us that in the midst of the worst conditions, life still thrives. Even in the worst of scenarios, there's still a heartbeat, or in this case, still a bacteria. Life still thrives. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the best intentions, the best intentions. You see, even in the worst conditions, you often find the best intentions. And these best intentions are seen in three unsung heroes of the book of Exodus. I'm gonna call them our three biblical mama bears. Three mama bears who most certainly shine like bright lights in a dark and grim world. The first two are the Hebrew midwives. Know their names, Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. We find their story in chapter one, verses 15 through 21. Would you turn there with me? I wanna read that for you. 
Exodus 1, beginning in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Make no mistake. These women are earthly heroes. They are heroes. They defied the most powerful man in the world. We can debate all day, as scholars like to do, whether they lied to him about sparing the children or if God had indeed allowed the children to be born before the midwives showed up. God could have done that. We can debate all that, but it's not necessary. All we need to do is look at five key words. They're repeated twice, second time in verse 21. Because the midwives feared God. Because the midwives feared God. They knew that killing the male child, any child, would be a grievous sin against God. They feared him. So fearing him more than man, they stood up to the tyrannical bully. They stood up to him. Listen, we're, we're called to submit to authorities, even government authorities. But listen, we are nowhere, nowhere in God's word given license to sin because they tell us to do so. There comes a time, and I believe we've lived in these times before and we're likely living in them now, where we stand up to them and say, enough, enough. That's too far, I won't go there. No. You wanna take, you want me to take the life of a child because you're telling me to? No. You want me to not only accept, but celebrate sexual perversion and immorality that is expressly condemned in the scriptures? No. You want me to bow the knee to some theory that seeks to stomp out racism by creating another form of racism altogether? No. You want me to turn a blind eye to all kinds of social and economic injustice for the sake of some false sense of peace and security? No. No. No, no, we don't do that. It's better to fear God, fear God, face earthly consequences. It's better to do that than to deny him and bring reproach upon his name. This is what Shifra and Pua are doing here in this text. A line is being crossed. They are being told to sin, and they're saying no. So with the best of intentions, they're standing up to Pharaoh and they're standing against sin. And God certainly honors them for it. We're told that in this text. He doesn't just protect them. I mean, they walk out of there, surprisingly. 
But guess what else they get? They get a family. God gives them families. We don't always have a positive view of family in our culture, but it's still one of the greatest gifts from God. Blessed is the one whose quiver is full. They were given families. But there's another mama bear in this story. There's another one. We don't actually learn her name until chapter six, verse 20. So I'll just tell you what it is. It's Jochebed. The beginning of chapter two tells us of Jochebed's heroism. We read of it. She refuses to throw her newborn son into the Nile. So she instead hides him and nurtures him for three months. I can only imagine how difficult that would have been. She hides him and nurtures him for three months. When she's no longer able to hide him, I assume he's starting to cry a lot more and maybe move around a little bit. She undertakes an amazing act of faith. Well, she does, she builds a basket for him. And maybe you know this, maybe you don't. The, the Hebrew word here is literally ark. Teba, the same word used to speak of the ark in Noah's day. She builds an ark for him and sends him down the river. Now, she likely knew that Pharaoh's daughter would be there bathing, but we don't know. And she certainly didn't know how they were gonna react when they find the baby. What an act of faith. Send the baby down the river. Well, this ark just so happens to come to the daughter of Pharaoh, who just so happens to see the child and just so happens to have compassion on him. And then the sister of the child just so happens to be there. And then she boldly suggests, who is she to tell this royal person what to do? She suggests that the boy be nursed by a Hebrew woman. Makes sense. There's probably a lot of Hebrew women right now that could nurse children. Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And then the child just so happens to be returned to his own mother, to Jochebed, where he's nursed and nurtured and taught the ways of God until he's old enough to be raised in the house of Pharaoh. And it's there in Pharaoh's house where he receives the name by which we know him best, Moses. Moses. Do you see how God takes the best of intentions in the worst of conditions and weaves all of it together in his divine sovereignty and providence? And he does so to bring glory and honor to himself. Perhaps you see what theologian John Currid calls the delicious irony of all this too. Listen, he, he tells us, and rightly so, that there's one name here we never get. We never get the name of this Pharaoh. Throughout the entire book of Exodus, we don't get his name. Theologians, historians have debated this even till today. Most believe it was Ramses II. But his name's not mentioned here, but guess whose names are? Shifra, Pua, and Jochebed. Do you know those names? Praise God for Shifra and Pua and Jochebed. Three heroic mama bears who believed that the best intention is to honor and fear God above anything else. And in doing so, in a way that I'll admit is much greater than my own favorite bacterium, they teach us that even in the worst of conditions, life still thrives. 
life continues to thrive. And I was thinking this week that if there had been a 24-hour news network in the days before Moses' birth, I was wondering what the headlines might read. Here's a few examples that might have flashed across your screen. Hebrews, continue in slavery, no end in sight. Oh no, Hebrew sons to be tossed into the Nile. Or maybe God's promises, fact or fiction, find out tonight. We're used to hearing things like that, aren't we? Clickbait. This wasn't clickbait. These things were really happening. This is a bleak time for the Hebrews and they knew it. But even at this terrible moment, the hand of God was at work. God was planting the seeds of a plan that would eventually blossom into the redemption of his people and the fulfillment of all his promises to them. You see, in the worst of conditions, God is taking the best of intentions and using them to bring about his divine provision for his people. I hope you see, I hope you see that when God's people, people like Shifra and Pua and Jochebed and you, when God's people are committed to him in the place where he wants them to be, there truly are no little people among them. Each is important. Each is important. Even if their call is to just shine a faint light into a grim darkness in the face of their own suffering and their own weaknesses. God has a plan for his people. We've said that for 12 weeks going through the life of Joseph. I'm gonna say it over and over again. God has a plan for his people. He delights to work in and through the faithfulness of his people to take whatever offering we give to him, whatever faint light we might shine and use it to bring glory to himself for the good of his people. Do you believe that? Do you really, truly believe that? I'll remind you, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus knows suffering and weakness. He does. Not only was he born under a similar edict as Moses, do you remember? Joseph and, and Mary fled with him where? to Egypt, because Herod, the ruler, had ordered all male Hebrew children, ages two and under, to be killed. Not only was Jesus preserved through this, and not only is the deliverance that he brings to his people greater, which we'll talk about through this whole series, his deliverance is greater than the deliverance that Moses is gonna bring. Jesus continues, though, to look upon us as his brothers and sisters, he looks upon us as our Lord and King and he calls all of us who believe in him to stand up and to speak up and to live for him even in the worst of conditions. He's promised to always be with us. He's given us his spirit. He'll give us the words to say. He'll help us in our time of need. Even if we suffer, Jesus is and always will be faithful to you, to his people. So friends, take this home. God will not abandon his people. He will not. God is gonna keep all of his covenant promises to his people. As we'll see in Exodus, this is true in Egypt for the Israelites. And it's true for you and me today, right here, right now. There's no little people in his kingdom. 
There's no little people in Christ's kingdom. Do you know what that means? It means that you are not insignificant. It means that your life is not insignificant. I know some of you feel that way. If you don't today, you have before. Is my life worth anything? All I do is this, this, and that. It's not true. It's not true. You are significant. Your life is significant. Jesus lived and died and rose again for you if you're one of his sheep. Your life was so precious that he did that for you. He went to the cross. He ascended to heaven and he comes back for you, for you. And right now he's calling you to be faithful to him right where he's placed you, no matter how unspectacular that place might seem to be. So whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And maybe that's just those weird impressions we get sometime. Dwight Moody reminded us that the small act of lighting a small candle to give off a dim light across a dark and a vast sea was just enough light to save a person who was about to drown. You cannot know. You cannot. You cannot know how each and every act of faithfulness to God, whether it's mundane or even extraordinary, you cannot know how God is gonna use it to bring glory to himself, to bring about your good and the good of others here on earth, you cannot know. But here's what you can know. God is good, God is faithful, and God will accomplish his purposes. He will. So there's a lot there to think about. I encourage you to think about that. I encourage you to seek the Lord and ask him, oh God, where am I? What are you calling me to do? How can I stand up for you? And as you do that, would you keep this verse in mind? You know it, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?